0: Father of mercies, we worship you, Lord. We thank you, God, that uh, you are faithful, ever faithful, every single day of our lives, no matter what. Lord, we thank you that you are gracious and loving and caring. Lord, we thank you that you provided a means for restoration and renewal. And during this season of uh, dedication, this Feast of Lights, as we think about the rededication of the temple and the reality that your word says that our bodies are a living temple before you, Lord, I thank you that you have given us the opportunity through the blood atonement of Messiah Yeshua to rededicate our hearts and our lives to you, that your Shekhinah, your divine glory, your Ruach Hakodesh, your Holy Spirit, moves mightily and powerfully in our hearts and our lives, day in and day out. And Father, I pray that you will continue to teach us to submit to you in faithfulness as your glory reigns in our midst. Father, I pray that as we open your word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your word heard and received, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose and that you will breathe new life into us as we leave today. Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. Alright, so Little uh, caveat at the very beginning. Uh, my message has dramatically changed over the last hour and a half, two hours or so, from what was originally intended. So I'm really hoping and praying that this comes out somewhat close to cohesive as it is in my head as I try to, <laughs> to share what the Lord's put on my heart with you guys today. Uh, so this week we're in Parsha Ba'eshav, which is Genesis 37, 1 through 40, verse 23, which begins a narrative focused on Joseph and the turmoils he has faced. Joseph is actually one of my personal favorite characters in the Bible and there's so much to learn in the study of his life and what the Lord did through him particularly. One of my favorite realities of Joseph's life is that throughout the Tanakh we see countless Messianic foreshadowings and usually... They are a foreshadowing of either Mashiach ben Yosef or uh, the the suffering servant, Messiah, son of Joseph, the suffering servant, the first coming of Messiah, or of Mashiach ben David, the second coming, the victorious king, Messiah, son of David. However, Joseph is the only Messianic foreshadowing that I can think of in the Tanakh uh, in which he is a foreshadowing of both comings of Messiah in one person. And we can look distinctively at his life as he does in fact, and we'll talk about it today, does in fact go uh, into suffering on behalf of his own people, at the hands of his own people, but on behalf of his people. And then ultimately in uh, the next couple of weeks is elevated to a uh, kingship authority. I mean in all reality he sits above Pharaoh by the time it's all said and done with exception of Pharaoh's house. He is in charge of the entire kingdom and nothing happens without his approval. So we see the idea of the suffering servant and the victorious king, both comings of Mashiach in this one individual. But not only is he a messianic foreshadowing, but we see a unique picture of Yeshua playing out throughout Joseph's life. Here's just a selection of some of the ways we see this. And there are varying lists, but some of these lists have as much as 60 or 70 different characteristics that are uh, simulated in Joseph's life that we see in Yeshua's life. So one, Joseph's and Yeshua's mothers, both uh, uh, their pregnancies were a result of a direct divine intervention. Number two, Joseph and Yeshua were both raised in the promised land. Third, Joseph and Yeshua both served as deliverer of Israel. Fourth, Joseph and Yeshua both had divine foreknowledge of how God would use them, and their brothers did not believe them. Fifth, Joseph and Yeshua's brothers conspired to kill them. Uh, sixth, Joseph's brothers ate a meal while he was in the pit, and Yeshua's brothers after the, uh, ate the Passover while he was in the tomb. Joseph and Yeshua were both sold for silver. Joseph and Yeshua were both tempted, but did not sin. Both were, now that's not to say Joseph never sinned, but in the case of the temptation Scripture gives us, I'll clarify that. Before I get an email later this week that says Rabbi when in the world are you uh, Ninth Both were unjustly condemned and punished for crimes they did not commit Both were filled with the Ruach Elohim, uh, The Ruach Elohim The Spirit of God Both were 30 years old when they began Their public ministries Now, uh, these are just a few of a very long list of similarities that we see between Joseph and Yeshua. However, today we are going to focus on uh, the lessons that we see in Joseph's life in regards to his suffering. If you pay attention, his suffering was for the promises of God, right? So Joseph didn't suffer just because Joseph wanted to suffer. Joseph didn't suffer just because God wanted to be entertained at Joseph's suffering, Joseph suffered so that God's promises could in fact come about. We learned that uh, from the Torah that uh, out of Jacob's 12 sons, Joseph is his favorite. This is what we see in this week's Parsha. And uh, because of him being the favorite, he is hated above and beyond imagination by his own brothers. He was the firstborn son of Rachel, the wife Jacob loved most. And being Reuben, uh, who was the actual firstborn of Jacob, had messed things up by sleeping with one of Jacob's concubines. And Simeon and Levi, who were second and third in line, were involved with the whole Shechem debacle uh, the, the benefits uh, of being firstborn were then up in the air. In fact, according to Midrash, Jacob's giving Joseph the, what's called in Hebrew, the ketonet pasim, or the coat of many colors, as it's often translated, was a symbol of Jacob's transferring the firstborn uh, status to Joseph. As Midrash, Midrash suggests, that the uh, ketonet, ketonet uh, pasim was the same garment that Leah and Rachel both wore on their wedding nights, and that it was later set aside for the firstborn heir of the family to possess, and that this was well known in the family. But aside from Jacob's issues with his older children, it is likely that Joseph was Jacob's favorite because they had a lot in common up to this point. Both were children of women who battled infertility and who had difficulty in childbirth. Both of their mothers uh, only bore two sons, and both Jacob and Joseph were hated by their brothers. Ultimately, we also see the similarities with them both being separated from their fathers for 22 years. The lights were a fun idea in the beginning, and now I'm going blind. Uh, They were separated from their fathers for 22 years. However, because of Joseph's seeming uh, inheritance of the firstborn status and the favoritism so blatantly shown by Jacob to Joseph right in front of his brothers, Joseph ends up becoming hated by his brothers. And this hatred brewed in their hearts, and they made fun of him, pushed him around, and ridiculed him regularly and continually continually. We see the reality of this strained relationship as we read in Genesis 37, beginning with verse 3. If you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up there. Genesis 37, beginning with verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. So he had made him a long-sleeved tunic. When, he, uh, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him uh, and could not speak to him in Shalom. Keep that in mind. They hated him. They could not speak to him in shalom. They could not even remotely consider the possibility of being peaceful and gracious with him. Then Joseph dreamed a dream and told his brothers, and they hated him even more. He said to them, please listen to this dream I dreamed. There, was binding, there, were, uh, there, there we were binding sheaves in the middle of the field. All of a sudden my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Will you truly be king over us? His brother said to him, Will you really rule over us? So they hated him even more because of his dreams and because of his words. But then he dreamed another dream and uh, told it to his brother saying, I have just dreamed another dream. Suddenly there was the sun and the moon and eleven stars bowing down to me. He told it to his father and as well as his brothers. Then his father rebuked him and said, What's this dream you dreamed? Will we really come, your mother and I, with your brothers? to uh, bow down to the ground before you so his brothers were jealous of him but his father kept the speech in mind now notice the text doesn't tell us that joseph explained the dream to his father and to his brothers but rather that he just relayed what the dream was to them but keep in mind that jacob was a man of dreams as well Jacob was a man to whom God spoke through dreams and so he was aware that when these things occur that it is likely God speaking and moving and telling you something that is important. And so albeit Jacob on behalf of the other sons I wholeheartedly think kind of squashed it a little bit and said okay okay look are we really going to bow down to you are we really going to bow down to you Joseph just settle down little man settle down but it says very specifically that uh, so his brothers verse 11 so his brothers were jealous of him but his father kept the speech in mind so Joseph's a man of dreams Jacob's a man of dreams Jacob realizes what God is doing here he may not fully understand it but he realizes it and he holds it in the back of his mind and I think even as we move forward and we see Joseph's brothers come home with his coat covered in lam- or goat's blood and they tell his dad, hey pops, um, wild animal got him, he's gone, sorry. I think that in the back of his mind, Jacob still had this dream sitting there kind of gnawing at him. And, uh, and even though he was mourning, I think there was still this longing, well maybe, just maybe, because Jacob's father thought he was likely dead and yet he came back. And the same could be true with Joseph. Notice that the text says they hated him and could not speak to him in Shalom. And it says this before Joseph has ever relayed his dreams and shared it with his brothers. So it isn't because of Joseph's dreams that they hate him. In fact, the dreams only seem to push them over the edge because they were already full of hate toward him and the sound of the dreams presentation of Joseph ruling over them just didn't sit very well with them. But they had long been bullying Joseph before he ever shared the first dream with them. But I think that one line that was just mentioned, they hated him and could not speak to him shalom, and its location in the text is of vital importance in grasping what is really happening in this text. In context, that line reads, verse 3 and 4 of Genesis 37, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. So he made him a long sleeve tunic. When his brothers uh, saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak to him in Shalom. Joseph's brothers didn't particularly hate Joseph because of Joseph himself. It wasn't specifically anything he had ever done to them up to this point that made them angry or resentful toward him. It was because of Jacob that they hated him. It was because of Jacob that Joseph experienced no shalom with his own brothers. But notice, even while Joseph was ridiculed by his brothers, both before and after his dreams, never once did Joseph complain or even plot to get even. The brothers hated him before his dreams began, and verse 8 says that they hated him even more after he began to share his dreams with them. Again, I think this had very little to do with the dreams themselves, but solely to do with Jacob. Jacob had zero issues with showing his favoritism to Joseph even in front of his brothers. This was a uh, uh, less than wonderful parenting skill Jacob picked up from his own parents as both his own parents had their favorites of Jacob and Esau. But because of Jacob's favoritism for Joseph, Joseph was already perceived by his brothers to be in a place of leadership over them. So hearing these dreams where Joseph would rule over them uh, was too, just too much for them to, to handle. But it wasn't the dream themse- dreams themselves and it definitely wasn't Joseph himself. It was specifically Jacob of was blatant favoritism that caused them to hate Joseph. In fact, this hatred and ridicule that Joseph receives, and particularly his response to it, all is laid out in the Torah as a foreshadowing for us as followers of Yeshua to understand how to look at perceive and deal with the turmoil the trials and tribulations the hatred that we will experience as a matter of fact Matthew 10 21 through 22 Yeshua says brothers will betray brother to death and a father his child and ch- children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all because of my name but the one who endures to the end will be saved in luke 21:17 yeshua says and you will be hated by all because of my name john 15:18 and 19 if the world hates you know that it has hated me before you if you were of the world the world would love you as its own but you are not of the world since i have chosen you out of the world therefore the world hates you yeshua forewarns us that we would experience similar issues as joseph that the world around us, our brothers and sisters, if you will, will hate us. But it is not us in particular. It is not literally you and I that, I that they hate. It is Yeshua in us that they hate. Actually, to make it even more real, the world hates us not because of the message we preach or even the manner uh, of life in which we live, It isn't because we tell them of dreams and visions, and it isn't because they can see what is missing. Uh, It is because they can see what is missing in their own lives, in ours. They hate us because they aren't us. Yeshua forewarns us that we will be hated, but it won't be on account of anything that you or I have done particularly but solely because of the world because the world hates the presence of Yeshua in our lives and and you got to remember this is kind of the narrative throughout scripture the whole thing begins in Genesis with the enemy hating who the Lord created Adam and Eve to be as the image and likeness of God he hated who God called Abraham out to be as the foreshadowing or the forebearer of the promised seed that would bring salvation from the sins that the enemy sowed into humanity he hated who David is and would be because of the seed that would come through David he didn't hate them particularly and the world didn't hate them the enemies of King David didn't hate David because David was David. They hated David because of what David stood for. Because the enemy was what worked in them. Because of who David would ultimately be the forbearer of, as the, uh, the 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 great 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 however many great grandfather of Yeshua. And the same is true for you and I. The world hates us. They don't hate us because of the way we live our lives. Right? As a lot of times as, as Messianic believers, we kind of get uptight around people. If we go out to eat with somebody, we get uptight because, you know, they'll order whatever in the world they want on the menu, and we're over here like, okay, what doesn't have stuff I can't have in? What can, I don't want to make a scene about it. What can? And we think that people are going to hate us because of these things. We think people are going to hate us because we go to worship every week on a regular basis. We think people may hate us if we talk about the Bible. But the reality is, is it doesn't matter. None of the practical reality of discipleship matters in terms of why the world hates us. But the practical reality of discipleship plays into what the world needs to see in order to hate us. Because if we aren't disciples of Yeshua, they don't hate us. What they hate is Yeshua's presence in our lives— what they hate is when they see God in us, when they see that we have been recreated, rededicated, to use terminology of the season in which we are in, that we have been rededicated, recreated in the image and likeness of which we were originally created in, but allowed sin to get into our lives and our hearts and to damage that image. But we have been recreated through the blood atonement of and Messiah to still further that image in which we were created. And the world hates that about us, not because they hate us, And not even because they hate Yeshua. Now the enemy hates Yeshua. But the world doesn't hate us because they hate Yeshua specifically. They hate us because they don't have Him in them. And they may not be able to place their finger on what it is they hate, but they hate that they don't have it. Right? It's like when you're watching somebody eat a cookie that you think is really good, or Danielle loves cake, and if she sees somebody eating cake, she wants cake, right? It's not that we want what somebody else has. It's that we don't have what they have, and we wish we did, even if we don't know what it is they have that we want. The world hates us not because of who we are, but because of the fact that Yeshua resides within us. We see the initial state of their disapproval of Joseph in the early parts of Genesis 37, but this hatred really boils over as Jacob not only shows favoritism to Joseph, but also sends Joseph out as the Meshkiach, or the overseer over his brothers, when he sends Joseph to see how the brothers are doing shepherding the flocks and to bring the report back to Jacob. Keep in mind, Joseph's brothers already hated him. There is likely no possible way Jacob didn't know this, considering Jacob was hated by his own brother, largely because of parental favoritism and the byproduct of it. And he should have been keenly alert to the warning signs. Growing up myself with a younger brother who I messed with and picked on a lot as a kid, however not from the place of hatred, I can promise you that my experience says that they weren't only showing their disdain for Joseph in secret, It would have been clearly and regularly displayed before the entire family, especially considering that they hated him because of Jacob, because of their father. So after Joseph had revealed his dreams to his brothers and family, and the brothers hated him, uh, their hatred of him grows exponentially because of the perception that Joseph was saying he would rule over them. All Jacob still sends, uh, over because they, he would rule over them all, Jacob still sends Joseph out as almost a foreman, if you would, over his brothers. In a while, albeit likely uh, entirely unintentional, the message of the dream is being reiterated now by their father who already shows extreme favoritism to Joseph. So when they see Joseph coming over the hill, their anger and resentment is boiling over and they are raging at him. I'd imagine that they uh, had probably been talking about, uh, talking about him and, uh, and their feelings for Joseph before he had ever popped up on the scene. And then his smug, as they would perceive it, arrogant face comes over the crest of the hill off in the distance. And uh, it, it says that they had this whole conversation as they see him coming to him, which means they recognized him and his tunic that he was wearing from off in the distance. They knew who was coming and they recognized it. And they started to plot against him. And it says that they wanted to kill him. In particular that uh, they wanted to kill him and Reuben stepped in to save him. Now, keep in mind, Reuben's trying to earn brownie points. Reuben really doesn't care any more about Joseph than his other brothers do. But Reuben's the one that slept with uh, his father's concubine and is already in the doghouse. He's just trying to earn brownie points. He really doesn't care about Joseph. He just doesn't want to hurt his dad any more than he already has. And so he's trying to cover his own high. As a matter of fact, when we look at the story of Judah and, and Tamar, because it's Judah that ultimately says, Hey, let's sell him. We can't kill him, that's fine, but let's sell him. And we'll sell him into slavery, we won't ever have to worry about it again. The whole thing with Judah and Tamar was uh the, which kind of pops up out of nowhere. It seems to be out of context in what's happening, but it's a picture of this restoration. And actually the, the sages, the rabbis say that the reason that the story of Judah and Tamar is in here in the first place, where it seems completely out of place, is because before Before Israel goes into slavery, before Israel is locked into slavery in Egypt God has already prepared the means of salvation in that the seed uh, of Abraham, the seed that would be the seed of promise, the seed of the Mashiach is who comes through Judah and Tamar through the lineage of Perez which brings about the lineage of King David and ultimately Messiah Yeshua. So before the problem ever existed God had already put the solution into play and that's why that's randomly in the midst here in the mix of everything that's going on But I imagine this interaction between uh, Joseph's brothers as they see him walking up and they see that coat that just angers him that much more coming over the hill. And here they are resting. They're dealing with the sheep. They're doing whatever it is. And all of a sudden the the brothers go, hey let's kill him. Now's our chance. Pops isn't around. Nobody's around. Let's just get rid of him. Won't be a problem anymore. He can't favorite him anymore if he's not here. Problem solved. Reuben says, no, 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 let's not do this, let's not do this, look, we don't want to break his heart, we don't want to, we we don't want to kill our dad, let's, let's just throw him in the pit, throw him in this pit, and Reuben's plan was, I'll come back, and I'll get him out, and bring him, and restore, oh, look what I found, I don't know what happened to him, but I found him, he must have fallen in this pit, Joseph, keep your mouth shut, or I'll smack you around, don't tell dad what really happened, right, Then Reuben runs off, and tradition says that this was actually when Reuben was uh, uh, going to mess with uh, the concubine, although that's not necessarily the case. Uh, But uh, either way, Reuben runs off. He's gone from the scene for whatever reason. And while he's gone, Judah goes, I've got an idea. Here comes some Ishmaelites. And not just Ishmaelites. Remember, we're not that far down the lineage yet. They recognize that Ishmael is their uncle, great uncle. And they recognize that the Ishmaelites are their cousins, so not only are they saying, hey, let's get rid of him by selling him into slavery, saying, look, look, we don't care about him, let's sell him to our cousins. He's so low on the totem pole for us, we don't care, let's sell him to our cousins, and it really doesn't even matter what happens to him from then. They're just going to go and get rid of him somewhere else. Maybe they'll get rid of him farther uh, and better than we could have imagined. And so Judah talks to him into selling him, to the, uh, the Ishmaelites. Verse 18 of chapter 37. Now, they saw from a distance before he was close to them. They plotted together against him in order to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the master of dreams. Come on now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these pits so we can say that an evil animal devoured him. Then let's see what becomes of his dreams. But Reuben heard and rescued him out of their hands saying, we must not beat him to death in order to rescue him from their hand. And to return him to their father Reuben said to them don't shed blood Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness But don't lay a hand on him So as soon as Joseph came up to his brothers They stripped Joseph of his tunic The long sleeved tunic that he had on Then they took him and threw him into the pit Now the pit was empty with no water in it That little statement is there To say it hurt when they threw him in There was nothing to break the fall They picked him up and threw him into a well And decided to just leave him there Then they sat down to eat bread. When they looked up, behold, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels carrying gum, balsam, and myrrh, going to bring them down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites let's not lay our hand on him since he's our brother, our own flesh his brothers listened to him when they, the, some men uh, Midianite merchants passed by they dragged Joseph up uh, out of the pit and they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver and they brought Joseph to Egypt obviously this account of Joseph being sold for silver gives a prophetic nod to Yeshua being betrayed by Judas but it goes even beyond that all of the disciples were plotted against read through the book of Acts to uh, uh, read through the book of Acts and look at all the biblical historians accounts of the manners in which the disciples were tortured and killed remember the betrayal of Joseph didn't begin with his being sold it began with his brothers plotting against him and we read over and over again in the gospels and in acts of Yeshua and the disciples being plotted against by their own uh, uh, countrymen remember as we said earlier it isn't specifically us that the world hates it is he who is in us that they hate. The world around us sees something in us that is missing in their own lives and they resent us for it. Living in the states, we have rarely ever had to suffer. Or be truly hated for our faith. Sure, there's a rising voice of of dissension against biblical faith, I will give you that, but we've never, even in the course of this past year, uh, with months of online only worship because of COVID concerns, we've never had to worry about the government or external entities shutting us down and telling us we can't worship. We've never had to have underground congregations just to be able to gather, tucked away in the dim light of homes and basements, hoping no one will hear us and find us. Even in this season, as we celebrate Hanukkah, we commemorate the events of the rededication of the temple with the dreidel game. Tradition says that in the original state, the dreidel was something played in order to hide the study of Torah, which had been outlawed. If someone came in to spy out whether Torah was being studied or discussed, they would find the household playing with a spinning top and candy instead. But Yeshua was very clear. The days are coming in which our faith will be tested by trials and tribulations, by attacks and suffering. And while it is very easy for us to be uh, lackadaisically uh, worshiping God when it's easy, and truth be told, we take even that for granted more often than not, we've had it very easy here in the States. Matthew ten thirty eight says, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me isn't worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew sixteen twenty six uh, or 24 through 26 says, then Yeshua said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man? if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And here's the thing. Yeshua, like Joseph, was more than willing to suffer on our behalf for the glory of God. Joseph knew that there was something greater at play than his own life and his own will. That there was something greater at play than he could ever imagine. He didn't necessarily understand his dreams just yet. But he was willing to suffer for whatever God had in store for Israel. He had perfect faith that God was in control. That God had a purpose for everything happening to him. Are we willing to suffer on behalf of Yeshua? Are we willing to suffer for his glory? Are we willing to go through the trials and the tribulations? Are we really willing to be hated? And I don't mean just have people not understand us. But actually be hated for the kingdom of Messiah. Are we willing to lay it all on the line? Are we willing to prioritize Yeshua above all else in our lives? Are we willing to make sure our lives through and through proclaim Him in every situation we find ourselves in? Not just in our words, but in our actions and our thoughts. Imagine being Joseph. Try to picture yourself in his shoes. He comes to check in on his brothers and at the behest of his father only to be tied up and thrown into a pit and to hear them talking about killing you. Ultimately, they decide against killing you, and instead, just sell you as a slave and to your own cousins of all people. Then you find yourself enslaved in Egypt. Along the way, God continues to bless you and everyone who comes into contact with you, but you're still enslaved, and your own brothers who you loved are responsible for it, and they still hate you. Even though they have no clue if you're even alive anymore, they still hate you and want to see you die again if necessary. Most of us in, in, in Joseph's shoes would have thrown in the towel, dreams or no dreams we would have thrown our hands up and said forget about it but here's Joseph who just keeps trucking along faith fully intact no doubts no fears no worries I'm sure he had moments of punching walls and cussing his brothers out under his breath and contemplation of payback but his faith never wavered and around, those around him recognized his faith they recognized that something different was about him and if we pay attention to the story as he was in Exodus, that's exa- I mean in uh, Egypt, that's exactly what happened. People recognized there was something different about him. They didn't understand it, they didn't get it, but there was something there. And just as it feels like everything is going well, finally for him, at least as much as it could be in slavery, his master's wife develops the hots for him and tries to seduce him. Like Yeshua, he's unwavering in rejecting the temptation, but still finds himself in prison on false accusations. Yet he knows without a doubt that God is still in control. And he is willing to suffer as long as needed until God's timing was complete and his plan was ready to be revealed. When I think about Joseph, I think about the heart of Isaac. Isaac was more than willing to lay his life down as a sacrifice if that's what God wanted. And he had perfect faith that even if that happened, even if he was sacrificed by his father on Mount Moriah, that no matter what, he would still come back down off that mountain with his father walking hand in hand. He had no doubt that whatever God's purpose was in the sacrifice, in the Akedah, in the binding of Isaac, no matter what God's purpose was, him and his dad were coming back down off that mountain. Whether that meant he was going to be uh, seeing something substitute as a sacrifice instead of him as is what happened or that Isaac had to be resurrected from the dead. He knew he was the son of promise. The seed of promise would come through him and he knew without a doubt that he was coming back down off that mountain alive and well and ready for what God had in store. And Joseph was the same. He knew without a doubt that God was still at work. Even if he didn't understand it, even if he didn't figure it out, he didn't know what was happening, even if he was sad and sorrowful in the state that he found himself in, he was fully faithful that God was in control. As we prepare to close, I want to go ahead and ask our worship team to make their way back up. You know, when, I, uh, when thinking about this message, I, I've been thinking about my brief time ministering in rural Africa with Jewish Voice Ministries, and I watched people wait online for days, to have their eyes checked, to get their teeth cleaned, for minor surgeries, and so on. All of these are things that here in the States we take for granted. And we don't have to wait forever, right? If I need a doctor's appointment, I call and make an appointment, I show up. I mean, odds are they're going to make me wait an hour and a half longer than my appointment was. But I know I can get in. But I also know that if I have to wait more than two or three minutes for my curbside order at Chick-fil-A, I'm going to lose my mind. But here people were waiting for days on end just to get their teeth cleaned. And I can't wait in the Chick-fil-A line for just a couple of minutes for something that they could only wish that they had access to I've been conversing with a pastor in Kenya of late. Uh, and Pastor Robert, if you're watching, uh, we want to say Shabbat Shalom to you guys. I know you comment on our videos quite often. Uh, we want to say about Shabbat Shalom to you guys and to your community, your congregations there in Kenya. And we are praying for you guys. Um, I'm amazed at the willingness and joy of heart as I hear Pastor Robert talk about how today, this Shabbat, which... It's now Shabbat over, and so yesterday there, which is today here, uh, that for Shabbat, that they actually, with their, the kids in their orphanage, they've got 54 kids or so in their orphanage, that him and his family and the kids in the orphanage walk 10 kilometers. And uh, I had to do the math because I don't remember how to make that work from kilometer miles. It's about six miles. They walk 10 kilometers to go worship with another congregation that's connected with them for Shabbat. Today, they walk 10, 10 kilometers to go do this. And we get upset if we have to drive 20 or 30 minutes to get to synagogue. You know, Messianic, synagogues tend to be regional. Most people are driving a uh, half hour, 45 minutes or longer to come to services. And, and we get annoyed if we have to do that. Because, oh, it's so far out of my way. It's such a, a long ride. It's such a hard. But we're driving along in AC. Uh, I, one of my vehicles is a, uh, a GMC Yukon Denali And it's got, uh, I mean it's an older one It's not brand new, but it's got Cadillac suspension So even if I'm on a rough road It's like riding a cloud, right? I've got AC, I've got heat I can roll the, put the sunroof back I can roll the windows down and feel the cool breeze Come through this time of year I've got my stereo going, I've got my phone Plugged in and I'm listening to a podcast Or, or audio books Or the worship music or whatever Everything is comfortable. Everything is easy. And I complain about it. It's easy, and I still complain about it. But when I was in Africa, and I was watching people walk barefoot for miles on end to come get treatment, that's when you start to really realize how easy we have it. When I think about Pastor Robert and his congregation walking 10 kilometers to go worship in unity and the power and presence of the Lord. And here I am complaining because our building is impacted by a hurricane and we have to be mobile for a few months while I look at a video that he sends me this morning of them worshiping under what looks kind of like what we think of as a carport here with uh you know pole barn and some dirt on there as the floor and they're out worshiping and they're giving it their all uh and, and all they care about is that they're joined together in worship before our father and we complain because we have to haul a trailer full of all of our equipment for serving by we I mean me have to pull a trailer Uh, And unload and load everything we need for service every week While I get to drive that truck That's pulling that trailer with my AC and my music playing I didn't have to walk 10 kilometers to get here Heck, I didn't drive 5 miles to get here I think about the underground churches in China And in Arab countries that are literally risking their lives To be able to worship Yeshua And yet not only are they worshiping boldly they're living out the Great Commission and they are seeing great revival. Perhaps the reason we haven't experienced revival in the body of Messiah here in the States like we desire is because we've become too comfortable and too complacent. We haven't had to experience the discomforts and suffering that the greater body is experiencing day in and day out. We don't have to think honestly about the suffering of Joseph as he was sold into slavery, as he was in prison for several years, as he was dealing with all of the abuses he went through. We don't have to think about that because that's not our experience. But it will be. It will be one day. The enemy hates us and hates the one who is in us just as much now as he ever has. And as we draw closer to the return of Messiah, even here in the West where we've had things so comfortable for so long and have been handicapped by the comforts of our life here and what that relays into our faith, that time is drawing to a close. And if we can't, in comfort, give God everything we have as Joseph did in suffering, as our brothers and sisters in China and Saudi Arabia and Iran and and. Kenya and uh, uh, Zimbabwe and Uganda and, and so on and so forth, if we can't give God our all in comfort as they can in suffering and in poverty and longing for the, even a, a remote smidgen of what we have, how do we think we're ever going to survive when things actually get rough? How do we think we're ever going to survive when things get rough? Now, I'm not asking for suffering, but there's something to be learned and gleaned from the faith and life of Joseph In the midst of all his toils. During worship this morning, we sang uh, the song from Shane and Shane based off of Psalm 46, which says, Oh, come behold the works of God, the nations at his feet. He breaks the bow and bends the spear and tells the wars to cease. Oh, mighty one of Israel, you are on our side. We walk by faith in God who burns the chariots with fire. Lord of hosts, you are with us, with us in the fire, with us as a shelter. With us in the storm. You will lead us through the fiercest battle. Oh, where else would we go but with the Lord of hosts? We sing that song. But do we really understand what it means? Are we really willing to walk in the example of Joseph for our faith? Because you got to understand the same promise that flowed through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... The promised seed of salvation for the entire world is the same promise that we rely on. But are we willing to walk in the suffering as they have? Are we willing to suffer on behalf of Messiah? When somebody comes and puts a gun to our head, I think about when I was in high school, uh, the, the the Columbine shooting occurred, I think, my sophomore year of high school. And uh, if you've never seen the book, DC Talk partnered with... Uh, um, Voice of Martyrs, and put out a book years and years ago. This was maybe a year or two after the shooting at Columbine High School. Um, but DC Talk, which was a, a group, a Christian uh, a music group back in the 90s and early 2000s, partnered with uh, the, the Voice of Martyrs. And they put out a book called uh, Jesus Freaks, Volume 1 and Volume 2. I thought Volume 1 was a little better, but it doesn't matter. Jesus Freaks, Volume 1 and Volume 2. And in Jesus Freaks, Volume 1, the whole purpose to them putting this book out there was because of something that occurred at Columbine. And in the introduction, and, and all of the, this book is, is it's stories of people who, who, who uh, allow their lives to be martyred for the gospel. And it deals with some of the, the characters we read about in the Brook and the New Covenant. It deals with uh, more modern and, and, and such people. But this girl was the whole reason this book started. And it was because when the two young men that went in and shot up Columbine High School, they came to her, they knew she was a believer. I think this happened in the cafeteria, if I remember correctly. They knew she was a believer and they walked up to her and they made her get on her knees and they put a gun to her head and they said we'll let you live if you deny Christ we will let you live if you deny Christ right here right now and she refused to do it and they put a bullet in her head and I think about that often because I wonder I wonder we talk while things are comfortable and easy about we would be willing to do anything for the Lord but when it really comes down to it will we be? When it really boils down to, and the gun is literally to our head, or the knife is to our throat, will we be willing to? Think about when I was younger, uh, I listened to a a guest speaker at a congregation we were at, and I can't remember where it was, and I don't even remember how old I was, but it, it still... Sticks in my mind of this image that he this this word picture that he painted, uh, in which he was talking about how uh, a time will come where uh, the the world around us will hate us so much, will hate the gospel so much that they will be trying to kill us because of the gospel. And he talked about this picture of if if there was this family and you know a father and mother and a couple of kids and the kids were all younger you know maybe fifteen and less. And the, 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 the enemy comes up to them And lays the father down on the ground And puts a blade to the father's head And says, we'll let you live if you renounce the Lord And he refuses to do so And so they say, okay, okay It's your life, okay They go down to the youngest child And they put the blade to the youngest child's head And say, we'll let your kid live If you renounce the Lord And the father refuses to And they chop off the kid's head They move to the next child And said, we'll let you live and your kid live if you renounce the Lord and he refuses to and they chop the kid's head off and they keep moving up the line until they get to the father who's now watched his entire family die while he refused and they refused to turn their hearts against the Lord and they come to him and say now we will let you live if you renounce the Lord and he refuses to and he loses his life and I think about are we willing to suffer when we read Joseph's story Are we willing to go through what Joseph went through just to see the truth of Messiah come about? Because it was through Joseph's suffering that Israel was spared so that our Messiah could come and relieve us of suffering. But are we willing to suffer on his account? Are we willing to suffer on his behalf? Are we willing to wholly and completely submit in the power and the presence of the Lord that when that time comes, we are willing to lay our lives down for him? And I think it's really easy for us to say we are in the world that we live in right now, because here in the West we got it easy. But when it really is right in our face, are we going to be willing to? I pray that we be wholly empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh, by the Holy Spirit, that we be humbly willing to submit to the power of the Spirit whether we are facing trials and tribulations or walking in the comforts of this life. May we learn to have the same faith and trust in Hashem as Joseph did. May we learn to have the same self-sacrificing love for the world around us that Messiah Yeshua had. May we be willing to lay it all on the line for Him. And as we progress through the story of Joseph, we will see that not only does he do this, but the Lord does in fact use him to bring restoration to his family and to bring salvation to his family. And through that provides a means by which not only do we see the Messiah come about down the road, but we see the development, the further development of the prophetic message of the salvation that would come through Yeshua through the Exodus and so many other things that occurred leading up to the first century. But if Joseph wasn't willing to suffer so that he could see the promise come about, he would have never seen it the way he did. And we as followers of Messiah must be willing to suffer on behalf of him. And as Yeshua says, it isn't us that they hate. It is him in us that they hate. The world does in fact hate the Messiah. And because of that, they will hate us. But are we willing to stand in the gap anyways are we willing to lay it all down to see the good news of messiah yeshua go forth are we willing to be like the hasmonians who in the face of definitive death with a ragtag army ready to fight against an army that was the strongest in the world at the time are we willing to face that battle knowing that we could die but knowing that we serve a god who's far greater so that we can see the lives of many be restored and renewed? Are we willing to give God everything that we are because he has literally given everything for us? Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful and gracious. God, I thank you that you have laid out so many powerful examples for us throughout Scripture of what it looks like to be willing to uh, walk in faith and not in power, not in our own might, but trusting that you, Lord, are in control no matter what, trusting that you have a plan and a purpose that even if we don't necessarily understand it, you are in control. Lord, I pray that you will begin now to build a burden within our hearts and lives here uh, at congregation Mein Chaim, the body Messiah as a whole here Uh, in the U.S. and beyond a burden in our hearts and lives to stand firm for your truth no matter what to be willing to stand against all adversity no matter what to be willing to lay our lives down for you no matter what Father I pray that you will begin even now to remove the complacency and the laziness we have in our faith that we will in fact turn to discipleship principles day in and day out wholly seeking after you yearning for a bolstering of faith in you, a bolstering of your Ruach HaKodesh in our hearts and our lives so that the world around us will see more of you in us and yearn for you in their lives. Father, I pray for uh, our brothers and sisters who are suffering on behalf of your good news around the world. Lord, that you will continue to pour out revival and renewal and that, Lord, as they suffer, that they will see thousands upon thousands upon thousands come to faith in Yeshua because they are willing to lay it all on the line and father may they be blessed above and beyond anything they could ever imagine as they walk faithfully and fervently in you and lord although we do not beg desire or yearn for suffering we pray that when the time comes that we do have to suffer on behalf of your holy name that we will do so willingly by the empowerment of your Ruach HaKodesh with no fear, with no trepidation, with no second guessing, willing to lay it all down for you. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen.